This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. Each week you'll hear world-leading scientists and experts talking about the most fascinating ideas in science and technology today. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Benjamin Woolish from Imperial College London's Department of Metabolism, Digestion and Reproduction. He tells me about the promising new science of faecal transplants. Okay, so first off, when we're talking about faecal transplants, what exactly are we talking about? Okay, so this is the this is a medical treatment whereby our primary aim is to restore the balance of all the billions of healthy bacteria that we have in our gut to people with particular conditions. And it's not just the bacteria, it's all the chemicals they produce, it's other viruses that live in the um in our in our poo and in our guts as well. So we're trying to take the entire community and restore them to people with diseases. And the, the reason we're doing that is because we think disturbances of the balance of these particular bacteria and the environment they live in is what contributes to a number of different diseases and particularly C. difficile infection. So what we do is we, um, we're trying to get hold of the whole bacterial community from healthy people, from, to restore it to like a, a healthy persons. So we take a load of healthy people we screen them intensively in the way that you would think of people who are blood donors are screened. So they undergo a whole lot of questionnaires to check on their general health. We take a lot of screening of their blood and of their stool, take blood poo samples as well to, to check for their health, make sure they haven't got a number of wide range of different infections. We keep them under close health follow-up and we take poo samples from them, process them in the laboratory. So we try and get rid of anything we we don't want any stuff that's in, in, in poo. We don't want food waste and other rubbish. What we do is we're trying to distill out and keep all the healthy bacteria and everything else around it and restore that into the gut. And there's a number of different ways in which we try and deliver that material into people. Some of that has been through endoscopies, using camera tests either from the top end or the bottom end of people. Some of that has been using fine tubes that we put up people's nose. And increasingly, it's in early days, but being increasingly used, we're able to actually get the material into um, capsules, which obviously has a number of different um, advantages, but is preferred by our patients because it's just easier, less invasive all around. Yeah, so this sort of all centres around the significance of the, the the gut microbiome. So can you can you tell me a bit about how significant that is to our to our health? Yep. So so. When people talk about bacteria in the gut, I think most people's uh, initial instinct is to think about things they might have heard of, like salmonella or things that cause food poisoning or those sort of things. But over the past 20 years or so, perhaps a little longer, we've started to appreciate that there is this entire hidden, hidden ecosystem, hidden community inside of us, in which we have billions of bacteria, sometimes quoted as trillions of bacteria within our gut. And not just bacteria, a whole community, the chemicals they make, the environment they live, all sitting inside of us. And not just along our gut, but the term microbiome refers to sort of all the slimy surfaces. So in our saliva, the lining of our lungs, lining of our, of our um, reproductive system as well. 
where we have all these bacteria living there and that have a huge amount of, uh, contri- well, increasingly we've realized, have a huge contribution to our health. So it's been a sort of co-evolution, just as we provide an environment for these bugs that, you know, we keep the heating on, we keep them nice and warm, we keep the acid level of acidity right. The feeling's mutual because we provide an environment for, um, uh, they provide a lot of benefit for us, whereby they provide uh, particular chemicals that we use to um, provide us energy sources or to control our metabolism or that in- protect us from infection or provide a huge different number of functions to keep us healthy. So we do some stuff for them and they do some stuff for us back. So we're talking about transplants here. So they come from a from a donor's gut. Yeah, exactly right. So so we we have this bank. We, we, most places that places that do fecal transplant have a bank of um, donors. So they're healthy people that we're screening on a regular basis and collecting poo samples, collecting stool samples off them that we're using to actually make the material that we're then that we're then transplanting into a into uh, healthy people. So when you think of transplants normally, of course, people are thinking of kidneys or livers or those sort of things. But of course, this is a bit more a bit more unusual because what we're talking about is taking what you know you would initially think of as waste material for one person, but actually using this as a yeah. sort of medical aspect to try and treat someone else. Sort of following on from that, how do you determine that somebody has a healthy gut that is a viable donor? Yep, so that's a that's a really good question. So there is a, a long-running debate that hasn't been answered about how do we actually define what a healthy gut microbiota is. And there's lots of different ways you can start to try and answer that question. You can try and say which particular bacteria are in there. However, it's more complicated than that because different bacteria do different functions in different environments and in people with different diseases. You can start to look at some of the functions they do in terms of, say, particular... Uh, chemicals they produce or particular proteins they produce. Um, but again, that only gives us some degree of insight. You can start to look at functions they do for us, you know, the ways they interact with us as as humans or as, or as other animals to, to try and help us keep us healthy. But when it comes to actually in terms of fecal transplant, how do we select a, a good donor? We're still at quite an early stage. At most, for most cases, we're we're trying to mitigate risk by trying to exclude people where we think they might have an adverse gut microbiota or a risky gut microbiota, rather than particularly selecting out those who have a good gut microbiota. So more specifically, we do a lot of screening to look for people with infections or to have problems with their guts, or we might exclude people. We're very meticulous about excluding people who might have conditions that are associated with an, a particular gut microbiota. So for instance, we might exclude people with inflammatory bowel disease or who've had uh, growths in the gut, or even people with a family history where they might have had polyps or cancers in their gut. But then it gets even more obscure than that, that lots of centres, us included, would even ask potential donors about if they've had depression or anxiety or other mental health problems in the past. So you might think, why is that relevant? It seems pretty obscure at first why you do that. But this is a whole group of conditions where it's been associated with um, abnormalities or disturbances of the gut microbiota. And while this sort of treatment is in a sort of relatively early phase, We'd rather err on the side of caution and perhaps be a little overcautious on people we pick as donors than to um, than to be too laid back about it and um, and uh, and then have to deal with consequences later. Yeah, yeah. So I think, like, sort of naturally, some people are going to think that this is slightly unpleasant, for want of a better better word. When when you make the transplant, it, it, is it just from one person's? gut to, to another's without you know 
any treatment or 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 so yet so 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 what we do in the process is this moment in time we'll get a donation from a single donor and we will process that in the laboratory and then we've got the transplant material and then from the material we make from one person that is a sort of unit of fecal microbiota transplant that we transplant into someone else one good thing about using you know, one donut and one one material and, and one transplant is it means if there are any problems, if the recipient of the material had any issues, it's easy to try and establish the source. We can easily look back and say, look, let's go back to that donor and the samples we got stored from them and ask them again about their health and see what's happening. However, another way of looking at it and another sort of theory that people have come up with is that maybe we should be what's called pooling donors. In other words, getting material and pooling it from a number of different donors. And the idea of that is that if you took a number of different people's donations and mixed them together, so if there was a particular bacteria of benefit that's low in one person, you might compensate from that being there in the other person. Um, And so by mixing it all together, you might have a sort of a richer community that collectively has a sort of bigger number of functions and bigger number of bacteria um, than you would get otherwise. The problem with that, of course, is say you transplant a mixed product into someone and they have a problem, you don't know which of your, you know, five donors or seven donors or whoever it is might have had the problem, might have had a, you know, a dodgy bacteria you wish hadn't been there. So so there's pros and cons both ways. Yeah, so this is probably a bit complicated and maybe a bit looking too far forward. But is there ever, you know, a possibility that we could synthesize these bacteria that we, we you know, we can make them in the lab and then we can introduce them into, into the patients okay so yeah you're exactly right so i think what you're getting at here is saying that you know this is this is a, a still a pretty crude process and what we're doing and could we do something a bit more refined in, in in what we're doing so there's been a sort of number of different attempts at doing this and what a lot of uh, a number of different companies are doing is saying look can we identify the bacteria in a fecal transplant that we think are responsible for, for how it works most of all and could we, instead of just giving a whole fecal transplant, could we just give those bacteria together in some sort of mix, be that a capsule or some sort of drink or whatever it is, and administer that in, instead? And in fact, this year, there were some trials from a, reported in um, uh, a large medical journal of a, uh, of a trial of a sort of next generation fecal transplant product where the material sort of had originally been derived from um, from donors, but actually was a sort of spore product. So it was a sort of bacterial product that was sort of produced reproducibly in a lab without the sort of need for ongoing donor material. And that 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 seemed to work just as well as a sort of um as as antibiotics you would use to treat C. difficile infection. The uh, this product seemed to work just as well. So I think there's a new generation of products on the horizon that is saying, look, can we go beyond something as crude as fecal transplant and go on to something a bit more, bit more refined? However, there's still questions that remain. So, for instance, if you think of, um, uh, you know, people who need a blood transfusion, you know, you could split up a blood transfusion into saying, we'll give you the uh, an iron infusion and we'll give, you, we'll give you this molecule and that molecule that was in blood. But no one's ever been able to make a synthetic blood. You know, we're still very reliant on people giving um, blood donations, of, you know, in, in, in this generation. So there might be something about the whole mixture. There might be something about the whole community together. There's some element of the mixture that we don't understand at the moment that is beyond our understanding that works better than if we were just to try and reduce it down to its single components but it's a really important ongoing area of discussion and research that's a really fascinating point to make about comparison to blood transfusions actually something actually i'd never thought about that's that's really really interesting 
So in terms of the of the of of, of this procedure, you know, what um, experimental success have we had with it? Okay, so where where this sort of first really took hold was in this context of this uh, particular gut infection, a condition called C. difficile infection, Clostridioides difficile infection, which is a really nasty um, uh, gut infection that can make people very severely unwell, can even cause very severe inf- inflammation in the gut and even kills a number of people every year. And it was in this context that, that, that there was sort of a really clear rationale to start using fecal transplant. And the first sort of randomized trial where some people were were given you know, active treatment and some people were given just sort of standard of care, just normal antibiotics, was back in 2013. And that's where this field really, really kicked off. And when you do clinical trials, you always have to have an ethics committee who oversee you're doing the trial right and that people are being treated correctly and monitor outcomes. And in fact, the ethics committee for this trial cancelled the trial in the middle of it because they said the people being given the faecal transplant are doing so much better than people just being given the alternative standard of care therapy it wouldn't be ethical to continue and complete the trial. So, so since then, there's been a huge number of, of, of sort of you know, rand, what we call randomized trials where people have been given uh, fecal transplant or, or you know, standard of care, just antibiotics for, for C. difficile. And, and consistently, with all the data together, we can see that the fecal transplant is a really clinically effective and cost-effective treatment for, um, for this condition. And in fact, NICE, who are the sort of regulatory body in the UK, who look at clinical and cost effectiveness of sort of medical interventions recently within the past month or so have have sort of rubber stamped this have have, have published a um a recommendation on this which 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 hopefully will mean it gets sort of wider spread um uptake but but there's sort of another extension of that which is as 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 our research has expanded we started to realize there's a much wider number of conditions in which there might be disturbance or abnormalities of the gut microbiome a lot of those conditions are related to the gut, so they're common conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, a range of different liver conditions, including fatty liver disease, cirrhosis. Oh. But, but, but perhaps interestingly, a lot of these conditions are things not directly related to the gut. So they've included conditions like autism, they've included conditions like Parkinson's disease, including conditions like obesity. So things where you might not instantly think, hang on, what the, you know, the guts and the, the bugs in your gut might be contributory to that. And so based on the success of fecal, fecal microbiota transplant for C. difficile infection and its establishment as sort of part of, of, of more routine clinical care, people have then started to say, look, what's the sort of scope or potential for fecal microbiota transplant to be uh, have either as a treatment for a range of different conditions or perhaps to even see it as some sort of exploratory tool whereby if we give it to patients and we change the gut microbiome and some aspects of their health get better, can it give us a bit more insight into how important the gut microbiota is to these different conditions? So essentially, this is a nascent science that could have all sorts of ramifications in the future. Yeah, I mean, people are talking. People are people often make the description of the gut microbiome being a um, you know, a new organ. You know, and if you think of, say, all the organs you think of in the body and the range of effects they have on their health and how researched they are and how we have specialists who look after just these organs, be that your liver or your kidney or your lungs. And, you know, years of training that, you know, doctors, nurses or other specialists might do to become experts looking after that. And essentially, we feel to a certain extent that we've discovered a new organ that's been in plain sight the whole time, but that we're only just recognizing it and that we're only just kind of really at an early stage getting to grips with its potential. And the other really exciting thing about it 
is that the fact that we might be able to to manipulate it, that we've got tools like fecal microbiota transplant where we can actually try and change elements of it. And there are a whole range of different sorts of uh, ideas about some more refined techniques where we, are, where we might be able to use sort of precision medicine tools to either knock out very specific bacteria or knock out particular proteins or chemicals they make or to try and just introduce those into the gut. Um, and so, so yeah, it feels, it feels to a certain extent for those of us in the field that, you know, maybe we are on the, uh, the edge of a whole new, you know, generation of discovery here. Yeah. So that's really interesting, but I, ju- I just want to reverse a little bit when you said about antibiotics. So what is the issue with us taking antibiotics? What effect does that have in, in our microbiome? Okay. So the most important thing to say is when doctors are giving antibiotics, they're not, they're not generally giving them lightly. You know, they are giving them because they think the benefits are going to far outweigh the risk. You know, so for instance, if people have a chest infection or a bladder infection or meningitis, you know, they are, these are life-saving, these are life-saving treatments. And there shouldn't be people who are saying, well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure about them. They're definitely life-saving treatments. However, that we've got to recognize there are some some issues some issues that are emerge that are with us and emerging related to antibiotics and one aspect is the collateral damage that can potentially occur related to to antibiotic use and particularly that while they're really good for getting rid of bacteria and that causes harm the collateral damage is that they can also um, destroy or profoundly disturb the sort of balance of bacteria we've got in our microbiota so they can disturb these microbiotas that um uh, you know, in our gut or our lung or beyond that are, you know, play a number of different roles in our health. Um, and, and to the extent to which those sort of, you know, and, and as we're in a sort of, you know, this idea has sort of arisen that in a sort of Western, Western, Westernization of our lives, whereby antibiotic use is sort of more prevalent and that might mean more and more of a, of a, of a hit to our microbiota, or we kind of, as time goes on, might we lose particular species that we that we need, or particular bacterial functions we need over time? They're absolutely key, and that we're only going to really recognise those when those have gone. There've been some sort of there've been a number of people who have who have made the observation that you know the westernisation of our lives has been associated with a big drop off of a range of of infectious diseases, particularly childhood infectious diseases, which is really great. But it's also been associated with a sort of profound explosion of a number of different chronic diseases over time, including asthma, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. And whether that could be related to uh, disturbance of our gut microbiota through antibiotics or other aspects of westernization of our lives or changes to our environmental exposure is a sort of keen area of debate. The, the other, another sort of important area of concern regarding antibiotics that's been really well publicized is the rise in antibiotic resistance. So as we start to put the bacteria in our in our different organ systems under pressure, you know, by exposing them to a lot of antibiotics, then the bugs start to get smart and will and will try and evade that. You know, so they will try they have a number of different escape strategies from antibiotics where they've got particular genes that they can turn on and a different range of strategies in which they can um, escape the effect of antibiotics. And what we're starting to see all across the world is a real explosion in antibiotic resistance genes and antibiotic resistance infections. In other words, these are bacteria that can cause infections where we've got a more limited armory of antibiotics to treat them than we, um, than we, uh, than we originally had. So antibiotics are key. They're life-saving. They're really important drugs. But we, we kind of need to be aware of what are the downstream effects on our gut microbiota or microbiota elsewhere, and could that affect our health more broadly? 
And if we don't use antibiotics more responsibly, what are the potential implications for the future as antibiotic resistance mm. infections grow? So one thing that you said there, like s- some particular microbes, could I say, and I, and I guess can be, can be lost. I mean, are they lost and just gone forever, or can we get them back? Yep. So this is this is a sort of area of debate. I mean, I think that I think the I think the the thing that we recognise just to take antibiotic resistance, you take antibiotic resistance as a um, as an example. If we start to use antibiotics more responsibly, or we put more stewardship in healthcare settings like hospitals for for using antibiotics responsibly, we can start to see over time that those antibiotic resistance mechanisms start to sort of fade out and, and go away a little bit. So, and the same might be true of other ways that we're pressurizing our gut for our Western lifestyle. So, if we start to do all the things that support our, you, you, you know, our uh, our natural environments, you know, and those are things like thinking about antibiotic use, diet, lifestyle, uh, aspects of industrialization, environmental exposures. If we start to consider all those sort of aspects as well, then our uh, our, our, our you know we we might be repaid for those sort of considerations by a sort of hanging on to the sort of diversity, mixture, richness of our gut microbiota. We, we're still at a sort of early stage of recognising this, and we don't fully know the extent of it. But I think I think there's certainly concern enough that says we've got, just as we think of, you know, environmental aspects and the degree of responsibility that we have to, to look after to, to nature and ecosystems, this is another ecosystem that needs a bit of nurturing as well. Yeah, that's another amazing point. So what's what's the current situation like with the um, with the regulation? Like, how close are these to to being clinical treatments? Okay, so it's really important to say that you know, as we've sort of touched on already, because this is a sort of treatment where there's not a huge amount of precedent. Where in a way, it's sort of like a transplant, like we as we, we sort of alluded to in some ways, but in other ways, it's kind of like a drug because we think we're starting to tease out some of the mechanisms, how it actually impacts upon the people, then it's been really difficult for regulators to kind of say, what box does this fit into? And that's made it really difficult. So in, in some healthcare settings, this is this is kind of regulated like a transplant is. In the UK, for instance, we the MHRA, who are the sort of healthcare and drug regulatory body, uh, view this as a medicinal product. So they view the regulation more like a drug, uh, but it's different in different settings. Um, and then the other way I'd answer that is by saying that we, we talked before about a number of people who are going on to um, uh, look at next generation products. And the, this year, as I think I mentioned, one product, which is a sort of spore-based treatment that's in a capsule, that had a very successful trial. And there's an application to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in America, who are the regulatory body for drugs there. They're evaluating that. And then over the past week or so, there's been news from America of another product that is a sort of liquid slurry based product that's normally given into the the bottom end as an enema that is produced by a particular company which has been um had all its trial uh, results reviewed by the fda in america and has been recommended for licensing in other words recommended for use as a medicinal product that doctors could prescribe just like any other medical product mm. that's really a lot to chew on there I think by way of closing, I'd, I'd like to know, what can we do to look after our own gut microbiomes? I, 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 think, I think a lot of the aspects that we recognise are good for our health and recommend for the environmental health are all things that are, are, are really important for us. 
we recognize the key effect of diet and aspects of our lifestyle on our gut microbiome. And there's been a huge amount of work that's been published over the past few years about how just as we know that our, our diet is so important for our uh, uh, our, our health more generally that are part of the part of the benefit of having a good diet diets rich in fruits and vegetables diets rich in prebiotics like fiber is their ability to turbocharge your gut microbiome at the same time and keep it as healthy and diverse as possible some of those aspects are things that we've already mentioned already such as being aware of things that can um uh that can insult and can impact upon the gut microbiome so for instance we all know that antibiotics are important antibiotics are key life-saving drugs but we need to be keep a really astute eye and that's particularly our people like me as healthcare professionals about are we giving people the right antibiotics how long do people need to be on antibiotics they definitely need to be on them and that's not just antibiotics it's a range of other medications that we know can also impact upon the gut microbiome uh, and that's not the full story but i think those sort of aspects are sort of key aspects key starts to try and you know raise awareness and try and uh, set the agenda for looking after our gut microbiome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was microbiologist Dr. Benjamin Weish. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. 